Okay, so uh, we got a lot going on this morning. Uh, I'm going to share a few things, and then we're going to move into a time of uh, communion at the end of uh, service. Uh, the, the sermon this morning is titled, Home is Where the Heart Is. Oh, isn't that just a nice sentiment? And uh, I'll explain by the time we get to the end of the sermon, hopefully you understand where that phrase is coming from. Next week, we're starting a series called uh, Our Story, and we're looking at uh, who we are as a church, our past, but also our vision, what we feel like God is leading us into, and that's going to be a four-week series. We're looking forward to that, Uh, but this is a bit of a one-off sermon series, and I want to talk about money and tithing. Hey! There's a few of you guys that are excited about that. Uh, Many of you didn't seem that excited, so I'll give you a moment to escape. No, I... uh, so if you're new to SunWest, just know that we don't talk about tithing and giving uh, every Sunday. Uh, in fact, uh, I don't know when the last time we did a sermon on it was. It's been a long time. And so I thought, as a one-off, let's, let's, let's talk about it. Uh, it's important to talk about and understand uh, what it means to follow Jesus in terms of our whole life, including uh, our finances. And so home is where the heart is. At SunWest, we don't pass an offering plate around. You often hear us talk about that. Uh, And part of the reason is because we don't want giving and tithing uh, to become a barrier between someone feeling like uh, following Jesus, participating in a faith community. You heard Brendan. He's been here for a long, long time. And uh, he told me he hasn't even given yet. Uh, That's why he's running. (laughs) Uh, And so a couple of disclaimers as I start this. I at SunWest, and I don't know how it works in other churches, but I don't know who gives what. I don't know anything. I, all that information is not available to me. So I don't look at people on a Sunday morning and see, like, give or non-giver. I, 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 don't, I don't know that. I, 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 don't, I don't know how much you give. I don't know if you gave a dollar in the last 10 years or if you gave more than that. It's, it's all uh, confidential, and it's, it's not information known to me. Uh, another thing you need to know is I don't receive commission. So if, I, if we came... <laughs> If I finish this sermon and our giving just goes up exponentially, it does not change my life or my income in any, what, in any way whatsoever, okay? So allow me to speak freely about it, uh, knowing that I don't have like some uh, hidden motive behind it. But when I was growing up, we did pass an offering plate. How many of you guys maybe grew up in a church where you pass an offering plate? So in, in the church I was growing up in and they had, there was these hard, there were hard buckets and um, and so people would put their change and their bills and their envelopes and stuff in the, in the buckets. And you could hear the sound when people would drop change. It was like, Ding! You, you heard people, it was like, ooh, they were giving some money. Uh, and, and so I, I realized that there was a way for me to make it look like I was tithing uh, and deceive everybody. Uh, and so when the bucket would come, I would like, I would hit the bottom of the bucket and... <laughs> And the change would rumble around and, oh, Matt, uh, threw, some, threw some money in there. Uh, but there was a couple times where I just hit it and it was like a hollow drum. Boom. Uh, I was like, that's... So I was... Uh, didn't always work. Uh, no, but part of the reason we don't do that and we, we, we have our offering uh, out in the foyer to the side and uh, obviously there's automated giving that people can do here uh, is because it's, it's not a primary thing. It is, and I'm going to talk about why that is in a minute. But we desire at SunWest to remove every barrier that people have to following Jesus. And sometimes we don't talk about money 
uh, because for, for many, it becomes this barrier and there's a lack of, of confidence, there's suspicion anytime churches talk about money uh, because there's obviously been abuses around this. Um, sometimes we just don't talk about it. Uh, and so because of that, often we don't talk about it because we don't want uh, it to be something that it's not. But the reality is in Scripture we see that our finances, our possessions uh, are intricately woven into our lives and our faith with other people and with God, and it shows up particularly in our, uh, in our finances. So, here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a quick survey in the Old Testament. So that's, uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you have two parts of it. You got the Old Testament, you got the New Testament. The Old Testament is every, uh, are the scriptures before Jesus, and the New Testament are the scriptures after Jesus. Got it? Beauty. Okay, so I'm going to look at the Old Testament first. The parts of your Bible before, uh, before we get to the part about Jesus. And there's, a, and it, there's something referred to as the law or the Torah or the Mosaic law. There's, there's lots of different ways that people talk about it. But the commandments or the rules for living in the Old Testament are referred to as the law. All would acknowledge that the tithe was a requirement in the Old Testament economy for the people of God, for the Israelites. For the Israelites, those people that God had chosen, God had called, uh, the tithe was a requirement part of the way they did life. But the question is whether it is still a requirement of the new covenant, old covenant, old testament, new covenant, right? The relationship that God has with us uh, after Jesus came, was died, resurrected. So is it a requirement in the new covenant? And to answer this, we have to look back and ask a number of questions. Were all the Old Testament laws done away with? And if so, which laws were done away with? And if tithing was one of those, was that done away with? And so let's begin by looking at different types of laws operating in the Old Testament. Give me a cheer. Sound excited. Yay! Okay. Here we go. Moral law. Everybody say moral law. So first, the moral law is the foundation upon which the Old Testament is built. It's made up of all the commandments that are rooted in the character of God. So we believe that all, that, that the morality that God calls us towards is actually a reflection of his character, right? So there's, when, when God calls us to live a righteous life, that means living a right life in alignment with the morality or the character of God. And so there's all sorts of commandments that are rooted in the character and the nature, nature of God, which define, what, which define what righteousness looks like. So to break any of these commandments in the moral law is to sin because it's living out of alignment with the morality or the character of God. So as an example, let's look at this verse. In James it says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking the whole thing. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, you do not murder. If you have become, if you do not commit adultery, sorry, but you but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. All right, so those are a couple of examples of the moral law. And James is saying, if you break one part of the law, you break the whole thing. But if you read the Bible carefully, you'll know that there's lots of different commandments that people didn't always keep, that people did break, and that actually God said it's okay if you do that, and you don't do this, and how do we understand that? So one way of understanding is, is looking at the moral law. Here's an example of the types of these laws. Respect your elders. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. 
Do not steal. Do not lie about your neighbor. Do not envy. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not oppress widows. Do not oppress foreigners in your midst. Do not put a stumbling block in front of a blind person. That is... That is always true for all time. It's not like it was okay at one point to put a stumbling block in front of a blind person, but now, because of the new covenant, it's okay. You can put a stumbling block in front of someone who doesn't know where they're going. No, for all time. These things are rooted in a certain moral character of God. These commandments or laws will stand forever as universal standard for right and wrong. And at times it believes that Jesus was breaking laws, but the laws he was breaking were known as fence laws. And so there was like 613 commandments in the Old Testament, and the Pharisees, these guys who wanted to make sure they never broke any laws, created fence laws, like laws upon laws, just to make sure that, you know, they were guarding themselves from actually breaking a moral law, an important law. And so there was thousands of laws uh, that Israelites were trying to live by beyond even these moral laws. And Jesus comes and Often when he's challenging laws, or you've heard said, and do this, uh, do this, but now instead do this, he's actually challenging fence laws, laws that man made uh, in order to prevent them from breaking moral laws. Ceremonial laws. Everybody say ceremonial laws. So ceremonial laws was to point people to the coming Messiah and his redemptive work. Uh, Hebrews 8. Verse 3 to 6 says, Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Ceremonial laws. They serve at the sanctuary. That is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. So, ceremonial laws was to point people towards a greater reality. They were just a shadow. They were a copy. They were, uh, they were not as superior to what was about to come. It's kind of like people that drink triple triples at Tim Hortons. They, they can't quite handle the real thing, right? And so, so they got to put a whole bunch of sugar and cream in it. But it's just a shadow. It's just a reflection of like a, ch- a true, black, beautiful cup of coffee. You know, the, it, they're, one, it's like an introductory to, to a greater trajectory, right? So uh, ceremonial laws are like showing, or showing the, the, the Israelite people uh, something about the character of God. They weren't timeless, but they're pointing to a greater reality. The ceremonial laws were always considered by God to be inferior to the moral laws because they were only temporary in nature. So the sacrifices, the rituals, if you were to read through your Old Testament, you'd find huge chunks of Scripture where there's like all these rules and weird rules and you don't even understand them because uh, the Israelites had to do certain things around the temple sacrifices and, and, and rhythms of those practices. And what is all of that about? Well, all of those things very simply pointed towards the work that Jesus would do on the cross. It was a way of the Israelite people before Jesus came of, being, of living in a right relationship with God imperfectly. And the New Testament writers say it did it imperfectly. In fact, the reason the law came was to show us there was imperfection, to make us aware of our sin, but Jesus came and did what those ceremonial laws were only pointing towards. He completed them. This is why these laws are called copies or shadows. Once Jesus came and accomplished God's plan for redemption, the symbols and copies were no longer needed. Let's look at this passage from Hebrews 10 as an example. This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws. Which laws? 
moral laws into their hearts, right? Those are timeless laws. I'm going to come, I'm going to give God's, I'm going to give my people my Holy Spirit, and the moral laws of God are actually going to be available to them through the Spirit in them, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Ceremonial laws. Right? So here, in one passage, we have in Hebrews 10 an an affirmation of the laws of God, that God would put those on our hearts through his spirit, but also an acknowledgement that there are some laws that are now... um, that are now done away with because of Jesus' work on the cross. Ceremonial laws are gone, no longer needed. In other words, moral laws were and are much more important than ceremonial laws. In, in Proverbs 21, verse 3, it says, Do what is right and just. Moral law is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Ceremonial law. Okay? Making sense? Oh, I got another one example. First uh, Corinthians seven nineteen. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commandments is what counts. This is an eye opener because Paul is saying that circumcision was all, was clearly an Old Testament law. If you look in Leviticus twelve verse three, and this was a law, but it's not important any longer. It was a, this was not a contradiction, and it's only a contradiction if you kind of equate all laws as being the same. But Paul was clearly identifying some laws as different than others. Jewish separation laws. Say it out loud. Okay. So these are not rooted in the moral character of God, and they are not binding on the Gentile believers. So what does that word mean? Well, God had a chosen people, the Jewish nation, the Israelites, and then there was non-Israelites, and so the non-Israelites weren't bound to the same laws that the Israelites were bound to. In the new covenant, after Jesus came, Gentiles were brought into the family of God. Thank goodness, or else I wouldn't be in the family of God. And so there was Jewish separation laws in the Old Testament because the whole idea was that God was setting apart a nation, a holy nation that would be different than the surrounding nations because they were going to testify to who God was. And so they had separation laws to separate them from the place around them. Look at this, Exodus 34. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. And we saw that this happened in the Old Testament. That when the the Israelites didn't uh, keep these Jewish separation laws, there was a merging of different cultures and religions and they, they weren't the representatives that God was actually calling them to be. Israel was raised up by God to be a moral light to the nations, to point them, to point the nations to God. But if they became like the nations around them and they they couldn't be God's light, they couldn't point people to God. But all that changed when Jesus died, when Jesus came to earth, because it says in, in John and it says in Hebrews that Jesus was the perfect representation of God. So even though the people of God misrepresented him many times over and over and over again in the, New, in the Old Testament, Jesus comes and shows us what God is really like. And after Jesus, God invites all people, no matter what their background is, no matter what their story is, to come into the family of God. And so I don't know your background, I don't know your story, but Jesus has done away with every barrier that could possibly prevent, pre- prevent us from walking in relationship with him and his people. The separation laws 
do not exist anymore. And we read this in Ephesians, for he himself is our peace who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. So if you come this morning and you feel like you're far away from God, Jesus preaches and proclaims peace to you who are far. Invites you in. So the following separation laws, just as an example, were done away with circumcision. And I'm really glad about that. Um, so for those of you who are coming to faith as an adult, and we were, you know, never mind, I don't you, <laughs> you think joining a covenant community is hard. Uh, that two-hour class is nothing. Uh, food laws, you know, things that you could eat or couldn't eat, dependent, you know, they, these foods were sacrificed to idols and other gods, and um, those are done away with, those separation laws. Festivals and holidays, you know, so these are an example of things that we find in Scripture that were laws at one point in the Old Testament because of what Jesus has done made these two groups one. Those separation laws um, are done away with. Civil laws, last one. Everybody say civil laws. There's a vast body of commandments in the Old Testament regulating everyday life. Property laws, building code laws, penal codes. This body of laws is what is generally known as civil laws. I'll give you one example of this. It doesn't take long to understand what a civil law is. When you build a new house, you must build a railing around the edge of the flat roof. Civil law. That way you will not be considered guilty of murder if someone falls from the roof. That's a good commandment. How many of you have a railing on your roof? I just... Nobody. Sinners. <laughs> You're not obeying the laws of Scripture. And you might say, well, I don't have a flat roof. But even if you look at our church roof, it's flat. And out of all places, you think the church would obey the laws of... No, we don't have railings on our flat roof. So obviously it's getting to a principle beyond the actual law, right? Sometimes civil laws are made in the principles of God's moral laws. You know, you see it right here that, you know, God doesn't want somebody to die because he loves people. And so the law is take responsibility for your property and be aware of the risks on your property and do whatever you can to ensure that people are safe, right? Those are good things, but those are bound in time in a certain context and civil laws change. Does that make sense? So we got moral law, ceremonial laws, Jewish separation laws, and civil laws. The ceremonial laws, the separation laws, the mosaic civil laws have all been canceled and are no longer binding on us under the new covenant, but the moral laws continue. So then the question is, is tithing, to come back all the way around to it, part of God's eternal moral law? Well, let's find out. Here's the quick answer. Tithing isn't a moral law. It's not a moral law. And I'll talk about that here. Uh, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Is that how you pronounce that? 
cumin. I don't cook with cumin very often. Um, dill, though, I have, you know, have you guys had honey dill sauce on your chicken fingers? You guys know what this is? Sorry, quick rabbit trail. Do you guys... So I grew up in southern Manitoba, and we had a thing there called honey dill sauce. And it was just a mixture of mayonnaise, honey, and dill. And my whole life, this was what I ate with chicken fingers. Then I moved out of the province of Manitoba when I was 18 years old, and I went to a restaurant, and I said, and they served this like sweet and sour garbage. And I said, do you not have honey dill sauce? And then, you know, as a 19-year-old, or however it was at the time, um, I was completely startled to realize the rest of the world did not operate the way that I operated in southern Manitoba. And if you want a life-changing experience, <laughs> mayonnaise, honey, dill sauce, mix them together. I showed my kids. They, uh, they love it. Okay, anyways. So, tithing dill. Uh, that was a big deal. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. So you see there's a, there's a differentiation, differentiation between a tithing law and the matters of the moral law, the, these justice laws, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so Jesus is talking to Jewish people. Their understanding and their practice was to tithe. He's not necessarily denouncing that or saying don't do that, but he's saying the more important thing, the thing that I care about, the thing that I measure is actually if you are caring for the widows and the orphans, you're practicing justice, mercy, forgiveness, faithfulness to God. You know, these are the things that matter to God. Tithing wasn't mentioned among instructions given to the Gentile churches. So if you read through Acts, you'll see this wrestling that's happening. You know, when these non-Jewish people were starting to join the family of God, they had all of these conversations on what does it mean for us to be in God's family? What things from the Jewish tradition should we continue and which things should we stop doing? And in Acts, there was a short list. It said, it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit to, not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and for, to avoid sexual immorality, immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Nothing about tithing. Not surprising then that when... We read from Paul's letters, which make up a good chunk of your New Testament, uh, that he doesn't talk, he doesn't mention the tithe or teach the tithe in his subsequent letters to the Gentile churches. The Old Testament had three tithes. If you want to actually understand tithing, if you go back to the Old Testament, it wasn't like just a 10% thing. They had three tithes that totaled up to 23.5%. The Levitical tithe, 10% of farm produce given to the Levites, who were the ones who managed the temple. Uh, And then there was a festival eating tithe, and then there was another tithe that was set aside to be given to to the poor, to the foreigners, to the orphans, to the widows. That was essentially their welfare system. If the laws of tithing carry over to the new covenant, then we should be at least consistent with all three tithes and giving 23%. But we haven't done that, and we don't teach that. And so we don't even really teach the biblical idea of tithing anyways. Number four, Abraham didn't tithe under some universal divine law. And some of you might be wondering what this point is all about. But often when people talk about uh, the importance of tithing continuing, they will go back to Abraham because Abraham uh, covenanted with God before the law of God came. And Abraham tithed to a 
to a priest named Melchizedek who came to him, and he tithed to Melchizedek. And people would say, well, look, Abraham tithed even before the law came, so it must be some universal moral law of God. Well, hold on. The money that Abraham tithed, if you read it closely, wasn't even his money. I could tithe all day long on somebody else's money. The other thing, it was a one-time event. It was not an ongoing event. It happened in one circumstance because there's a principle there when God is faithful, we respond to him in generosity and thankfulness. And where did he get this idea from? Well, tithing wasn't even unique to the Jewish people. Tithing was actually practiced among other religions and cultures at the time. So in conclusion, there is no New Testament mandate to tithe. Thank you. Have a great week. Okay, so that was your chance to leave. You could have left right there and you could have been like, hey, I don't have to give anything, but hold on. Let's just wait a second. The New Testament picture, this is what we see. God owns everything. This is the New Testament picture. God owns everything. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 26, it says, For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Hebrews 3 verse 4 says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And we see this New Testament picture that Paul writes in multiple places where God is all in all, where God is putting everything under the feet of Jesus, that Jesus is Lord of the whole earth. In the, New Testament, in the New Testament, we move from a principle of tithing to a principle of stewardship. Now, I didn't have time to set up this metaphor or this picture this morning, but just bear with me for a second. Let's say I had, you know, 10 bags of money here, okay? This is my money. I got 10 bags. And here's... God over here, God's bank account, my bank account, and a simplistic understanding of tithing is I'm going to take one of these 10 bags, and even that's not a, I'm going to take 23 and a half of these 20, uh, bags, and I, I'm going to go put them over into God's bank account. Well, now I paid, and now I did my religious duty, I gave God what was owed to him, and now I have everything left over. Oh, let's reverse that's maybe an Old Testament picture. Let's reverse it. Let's take all 10 of these bags. Let's go put them over here because they're all gods. Are you guys following with me? And let's imagine for a second that what you have in your control is 10% of whatever God wants to give you. And now you have a New Testament principle of stewardship where God says to you, well, be faithful with what I gave you. And if you're faithful with little more will be given. And so we live understanding that this was God's and God gave it to us and I'm responsible for how I use it. And if I'm faithful, if I'm aligned with the heart of God, the values of God, the principles of God, and that is reflected in my finances, then God actually will give us more responsibility, which doesn't always mean more money. And I'm, I'm going to talk about that in a second. But the New Testament principle is that God owns everything. And everything we have, you know, we think this is 100%, but it might only be 10% of the thing that God actually wants to give us responsibility for. And he's actually looking and testing if we're stewarding what he gives us well. So New Testament pr principle is stewardship, not tithing. Second thing, money is often an idol. We see this over and over in Scripture. Matthew 6.24 
says, no one can serve two masters. Either you, you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I guarantee you, every time I talk about money in church, people get upset. And if you find yourself getting upset this morning, I would just hold on a second and say, what are you protecting? What is going on in your heart? It happens in my heart, I can tell you, because we have a tendency to attach to material possessions, to money, to actually look for money to bring security, to bring hope, to, be, to bring happiness. Wait a second, I thought those were the things that God was supposed to provide for us. God is our security, God is our happiness, God is our joy, God is our strength. And so it's very, very easy, especially for us in the West who have much. And I don't know your story, but I know that you have much just by virtue of where you live. To look to money to provide for us the things that God promised that he would provide for us. And so here in Matthew 6, we see that God is saying, you can't actually serve both masters. You're going to despise one. And in fact, some of us despise God. Some of us despise the things that God wants us to do because we are serving two masters. So, why give money in a local faith community? I'll give some other New Testament picture pieces in a second. But I do want to ask, answer this question. Why give money in a local faith community? Well, I'll tell you a couple of reasons. One, there's lots of good causes for you to give your money to out there. I mean, last week we heard partners, Steve Gumer. How many of you just wanted to send all the money you had to Steve? I was like, that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, we often have missionaries up here sharing. Like, these are the things God is doing. Please give, please give. And those things are amazing, and we want to give. But no matter how good the organization or the thing that you are giving towards is, the reality is when you self-select a place to give to, you are still operationally lord and owner of your money. It can be a great thing. We've had many people at SunWest that, you know, instead of actually giving to the local church, they, just, they, would, they, they would practice a tithe, so to speak, and tithe to a different organization. But you are actually failing to submit to something beyond yourself because you're playing the role of God, master of your own money. Part of the reason my wife and I practice tithing in our local church and why I think it's important to do so is because when you come to faith in Jesus, he becomes Lord of everything. You acknowledge that everything you have is his. But to, to acknowledge that everything you have is his and then control the money however you want to control it is actually working against that very principle. What we do in a faith community when we come under the Lordship of Jesus and we're in a covenant community, we talked about that this morning, we're a family together, we actually say God owns everything and the expression of what that looks like in a certain locale is the church community. And so we collectively let go of control over some of our money and submit it to one another and say we are a part of something beyond ourselves and I, in submission to Christ, I actually submit to his faith community. And, and in the process of that, we are unlording ourselves from our money. We are giving up mastership. We are giving up control. We are, we are in practice in this discipline, uh, actually releasing it to God. In, in, in the New Testament, the, uh, in, in Acts, 
It says all the believers had everything in, in common, which means that the, and there was no need among them because the community actually came together with their possessions, with their money, and they said, here it is. They put it, it's like, it's like holy socialism. That's what's happening. They, they put all their stuff in the, in the middle, and then they discerned as a community, as a faith community, uh, what they were going to do with it. And I'm not saying don't give beyond that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there's a, there's a discipline in giving to a local faith community that forces you to give up control, and it reminds you that God is in control, not you. It also helps donors from becoming arrogant, right? You can think, hey, I gave to this. But when you give to the church, it's anonymous. You know, you might, you might have gave like tons and tons and tons of money to SunWest, and I have never thanked you once for it. Why? Well, I already told you, it's anonymous. I don't even know, I don't know where the money comes from. I don't know who's giving. And I'm sorry that I haven't patted you on the back, uh, but the person who's not giving, the person who gave $100, and the person who gave $100,000, I, I, I treat you all the same. And part of that, honestly, is good for you and it's good for me. Because we can give, and it really forces us to do a heart check when we give, and it's, it's done in an anonymous way, and nobody knows who's giving what or what's, giving or what's being given, and nobody can pat you on the back, and there's something that it does to create humility and surrender in your life as you do that. Conversely, beneficiaries don't have to feel personal indebtedness to certain individuals. Right, so let's take the same scenario again. Let's say, I did know what everybody in this church was giving. Do you think I would probably lean my listening ear into somebody's opinions that, you know, you know they, maybe they gave like a huge amount to the capital campaign and this person gave nothing, and now I'm probably more inclined to listen to the person who gave it. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? So you can imagine the corruption that can happen in a church uh, when that is taken away, right? So, so giving in a... Uni- in a in an uh, anonymous, confidential, surrendering way in, in this way actually builds character for ourselves. And lastly, it ensures that funds are being handled wisely. It's, it's, it's no secret, you know, when you look at missionaries in different missionary organizations, the guys, that are, or the guys or girls that are on the ground doing missionary work often find it very easy to raise funds, while people that are doing administration can't raise funds because everybody wants to give to the story. Right? Everybody wants to give to the, the big thing. But when we submit our monies to a, a faith community, it actually ensures that uh, things are handled wisely. New Testament picture. It shifts from tithing to generosity. A culture beyond tithing is assumed. Many people say that tithing is an Old Testament thing. We should just do it the way that they do it in the New Testament. Trust me, you don't want that. The New Testament picture is, hey, here's my bank account. Take it all and uh, let me know what's left for me. That's the New Testament picture we see in Acts. Um, And so even just saying, hey, that's an Old Testament thing. Let's do the New Testament thing. That doesn't really work. But there's a culture beyond tithing assumed in the New Testament. If you make very little money and are presently in dire financial straits and haven't given before, I would just say pray about giving. Pray about moving towards generosity. Maybe moving towards a 1% gift would be a great start for you. I would encourage you to do that. Maybe you actually can't give anything because you're stuck in debt. The Lord wants to move you to a, a place of generosity, a place of financial freedom. One of our group's biblical groundworks at SunWest is actually all about helping you understand the biblical picture of finances and, and, and preparing you 
to live more freely so that you can live generously and be about the things that God wants you to be about. Some of you hear a money sermon and you feel shame because you're like, I believe it, but I can't do it. And I just want to speak that shame off of you in the name of Jesus. You, you don't have to carry that shame. But Jesus doesn't want you to stay where you are. He wants to move you towards generosity. And so maybe for you it just means starting to work at getting out of debt, starting to work at getting out of these payments that you just can't seem to ever get on top of and always, uh, always living out of a deficit. Uh, and so maybe even before you become generous, you've got to become disciplined. But maybe you can move to 1%. Maybe you can move to 2%. That's great. If you're already giving, plan, pray, and maybe adjust to 5%. Maybe you've been practicing tithing and you're giving 10%. What would it look like to go to 11% or 12% or 15%? What would it look like to go to 25%? Uh, Like, I don't know. God is actually inviting us to a spirit of generosity, to be a people of generosity. So it's not about the tithe. It's not about 10%. It's actually about generosity. And so are you generous in the way that God's calling you to be generous? And what does it look like for you to step up and move forward into a spirit of generosity? Another piece of the New Testament picture. God will provide enough for your needs, but not your greeds. So there, there is some teaching out there that would say, uh, like this is like an investment plan. Like when I give generously, God actually gives back to me financially generously. And the tricky part about talking about this is, is that, not that that's not true. Uh, I have many times uh, when I've chosen to up my generosity and be more sacrificial in my giving, God has immediately, in many circumstances, blessed me materially back. And I am not like, a, I'm not a prosperity gospel kind of thing. And I don't think God's a genie. And I don't think it's a formula because there's been lots of times where I've given sacrificially and it just hurt. Just hurt. And so, so this whole idea that when you give, God gives to you back uh, is going to disappoint you. God will provide for your needs, though. That is the biblical promise. In Matthew 6, he's saying, look at, you know, look at the birds in the air. Look at the flowers of the field. He clothes them. He feeds them. How much more is your God who is your father? You're his children. Is he going to take care of you? And then it says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Put God first. Put his priorities first. Put his kingdom first and he will provide for your needs, but not necessarily your greeds. It's not a formula. Oh, I just said that. Seek first. There you go. Okay. Uh, and then the New Testament picture is the same as the Old Testament, is that you are blessed to be a blessing. It's not about the accumulation of wealth. Let's say you did give, and then God gave back to you materially. It it doesn't even work, because now he gave back to you, and then his expectation is that you would continue to give. Right? It's an ongoing cyclical thing. God blesses you, and we bless others. God gives, and we give. God is generous to us, and we are generous uh, to him and to others. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. The principle is clear. We reap in proportion to what we sow. Our generosity always brings us spiritual blessings now. I guarantee you that you will experience more joy as you step into generosity. Often you will experience material blessings now, but not always. And always there will be eternal blessings in the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus talks about storing up treasures for ourselves in heaven when we prioritize his values in our finances on earth. Matthew 6, 19. And this is the passage I want to 
kind of camp on as we move towards closing here. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store, for, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, a couple of things I want to say about this passage. For. Everybody say for. As I was reading this verse this week, this just struck me. The for, there's a conjunction in the Greek there, and what it's referring to is back to the first two statements. So it's not just a standalone verse, and I've quoted that verse many times as a standalone verse, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, but it's for where your treasure is. What's the for referring to? It's saying, if you put your treasure on earth, it doesn't last. And your treasure is where you, your heart is. And the things on earth will fade away. The things on earth can be destroyed. The things on earth can be stolen. And so imagine if your heart is attached to your treasure, you put your treasure in this earthly place, and those things are destroyed and so stolen. They're decaying. They don't last. What does that do to your heart? Many of you know what I'm talking about. You've invested and actually put your treasure, your hopes, and your dreams into money, into investments, into uh, plans, into dreams, into business initiatives. And it didn't work out. And even if it did work out, sorry, this is going to sound dark, but we all die. <laughs> even if it did work out, those things don't go with you. Four, where your treasure is, there your heart is. And so many of us experience anxiety, depression, fear. Why? Because we're actually putting our treasure in an earthly place and our heart goes with it and now we're feeling the impact of that in our heart. Now in contrast, I think the four works on the other side as well. Four, where your heart is. If you actually invest yourself, your time, your treasure, your talent into kingdom things, into heavenly things, things that will last, things that won't be stolen, things that can't be destroyed, your heart is there also. And there's a freedom, there's a joy that comes when you know that you're actually investing in things that are eternal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is. In 2013, you guys remember the flooding? Okay, uh, crazy flooding. And Sun West at that time, High River was being flooded, people were evacuating, and for whatever reason, our church, well, I know whatever reason, uh, Kevin McInnes, uh, one of the pastors on staff, got his nose in there, uh, and in a really good way, and, and we were helping, uh, actually, we were the volunteer force as a church for Red Cross in Blackie, where the High River people who were being evacuated were being hosted, um, were being brought in, were being worked with, um, were were living in the curling rink um, and then being helped transition into a different place uh, of residence. And it, it, was a, it was a crazy time, but it was a beautiful time to see our SunWest community step up in a way uh, to do such a practical, significant thing. I remember on one of the volunteer ships there when I was there, um, there was this lady there. And when her house was flooded, she took the clothes on her back and she took the money in her safe. Uh, and she had $60,000 of cash on her. 
and she didn't know what to do with it. And then I said, put it into a bank. Put, like, put it in the bank. And she said she didn't trust the bank. Uh, and I said, well, there's lots of, like, there's police officers here. Let's, let's talk to police officers, and they can help. You know, I don't trust the police. Uh, I'm like, okay. Uh, but I'm not okay living in this curling rink with $60,000 in my sleeping bag, uh, not knowing what's going to happen to it. I Like, what are you going to do? And she's like, you're a pastor, right? I'm like, yeah. She's like, you're trustworthy? I'm like, this does not seem like a good idea. And, uh, and so I gathered Kevin. I was like, this lady wants to give me her $60,000. And, and he was like, that's a bad idea. I was like, I know, but I don't know what else to do. And, and so we, 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 I remember being in like, the hatch of this van was opened up in the parking lot. We were out there and we were like signing on this piece of paper. Like uh, we count... We counted the $60,000 in cash like three or four, five times uh, just to make sure it was the right amount. And then we wrote the amount and she acknowledged that she had uh, given me this much money and I signed and all that kind of stuff. And it was a, it was a frightening thing. And I drove away that night with $60,000 in my glove compartment. And what a bad idea. What a bad idea. Um, and just, just to, to conclude the story, once she found a different residence of living that we could get it back to her, I drove it back to her and, gave, and, gave, and did gave it back, full confession. Um, but she had $60,000 of cash, her treasure, and she was so concerned about where she put it. Who would handle it? She obsessed about it. It was debilitating for her. She, she didn't know what to do with it. Because here, here's the reality, is that where our treasure is, there are heart is. And when I've talked about this verse, I've always said, if you look at your bank statement, you will be able to tell where your heart is. Go to your bank statement. It'll show you where your values are. It'll show you where your heart is. It'll show you what you're investing in. And then you can look at that and say, hey, are these kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven types of things? Are these earthly things or heavenly things? And that's true. And for some of you, you're, you call SunWest home, and, uh, and I would just encourage you, look at your, base, your, 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 uh, your bank statement and take a heart inventory. What are you investing in? But as I've pondered this verse, I realize that there's another way of looking at it that is also just as true. I, I, I have talked to so many people that are looking for home, that are looking for belonging, that are looking to plug in, that are looking to be invested. And not only does your bank statement, or sorry, not only when you look at your treasure to tell you where your heart is, the reverse is also true. If you want your heart to be somewhere, invest somewhere. Some of you are waiting to belong or waiting to have a home and a, you know, there's a cheesy statement that calls home is where the heart is. I believe that's true. And if that's true, you, if you actually lead with your treasure, leave with your talent, leave with your time, leave with your treasure, the three T's. Put them into a faith community. You know, I care so much about what happens in my kid's soccer club. Why? Because I put thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into that year after year, uh, and I get infuriated when things are going well. Why? Because my treasure went there, now my heart is there, and now I'm invested there. You understand what I'm saying? And I know some of you are longing to be invested. Some of you are longing to have a home, a faith home. But you're actually not investing time, talent, treasure. And I guarantee you, if you step out, do that. Whatever that looks like. Maybe it's 1%, 2%. And maybe it's not, I'm not just talking about money, although money is a part of it. Serving. 
you will find that home starts to happen. Home will start to happen as you invest. My last, this is where I'm going to end. I'm going to invite the worship team up. When Paul is imploring a church in 2 Corinthians to be generous, Listen to his reasoning. He says, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, and knowledge, I mean, you guys are awesome, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you. There's no tithing commandment. There's no expectation. There's no legal requirement. There's no commandment here. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Paul's invitation to a way of generosity is precedent that it's built on the foundation that Jesus, who is all in all, who is Lord, came from heaven to earth who himself was God, like it says in Philippians 2, and took on the very nature of a servant, humbling himself even to death on a cross. He gave away his riches so that we who were poor might become rich. This is God in complete generosity who brought you redemption, who bought you and invited you into his family because of what he did on the cross. He gave it all. And the invitation this morning is actually to receive from God his generosity, his love, his grace, his forgiveness. He wants to walk in covenant relationship with you. He's poured out his riches so that you who are poor might become rich. So that you could be part of the family of God. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to take communion. And communion, for all of church history, history has been a place where we tangibly receive from God. We acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that he is Lord of everything, that he is the all in all, that everything we have comes from God, that we need, uh, that our grace and our, that grace and forgiveness and life actually flow from him. And so we come to him, thirsty, hungry, in desperate need of his grace in our lives and we say, I want to receive from the generosity of God so that in my poverty I might become rich. And when we walk away from the communion table, we walk away knowing that God has generously given to us and then we walk into a world where we're invited to live generously towards Him and others. I'm going to invite those who are serving communion to come to the tables and we're also going to invite our prayer teams around the tables. Uh, they're going to be beside the tables. And as you come to the communion table, they are going to say to you, so don't be freaked out. What did you say? Uh, they're going to say to you, Christ's body broken for you. And then when you dip it in the juice, they're going to say to you, Christ's blood spilt for you. And the reason they say that to you is because there's a decision in that moment to receive what Jesus has for you. I receive his body broken for me. I receive his blood that was spilt for me. Feel no compulsion to come to the communion table. The communion table are for those uh, who declare and proclaim that Jesus is Lord of their life. And we know that everybody at, that comes to Sun West is on some form of a journey and some of you have not yet come to the place of saying, Jesus is Lord of my life and that's totally okay. That's totally okay. You can just stay uh, where you are. 
Uh, but if you are, if you do want to proclaim that, receive that, we invite you to come forward. And as you're going past the table, you'll see that there's prayer folks there. And I would invite you just to step out and receive prayer. There might be something in your life you are like, I would like to receive prayer for this. Ask them to pray for you. Maybe there's nothing. And I say, put our prayer team on the spot. And you say, pray for me. My name is Matt. And then see what they do. See what they say. See what they pray. You know, they, they would love just to, to pray for you, whatever that might look like. You don't even have to say anything. You can lie to them and tell them some other name. They don't really care. Uh, but they would love to pray for you. Think of it like a drive-by prayer. Get communion. Just drive by. Let them pray for you. Um, it'll be great. So I'm going to close in prayer. Andrew is going to lead us uh, in our final song. And I, I would invite you to, if you're willing, uh, if you would like to, to come to the communion tables. There's one uh, at each corner. There's four corners. And we'll take communion together. Uh, and then when you're back, I will... Uh, Come and release you and close the service. So, Father, we thank you that you sent your son, that you gave generously, that you are the owner and ruler of everything, yet you humbled yourself to even death on a cross so that we might become rich. I pray, Lord, that we would live our lives in a response to your generosity, that we would steward what you have given us well, with our treasure, our time, our talent, Lord, that we would seek first the kingdom of God, Lord, and trust you at your word that you will provide for our needs when we step out and live under your lordship. So we thank you for your body that is broken for us, your blood that was spilt for us, and the new life that we can have today and forever because of what you've done. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I invite you to come forward and receive communion. I'm going to invite you to stand with us and we're going to close by singing the uh, bridge and the last chorus of uh, Good Good Father together um, and then uh, at the conclusion of the song uh, just you're dismissed, you're free to go if you'd like to receive prayer uh, prayer teams are available uh, so God we thank you for your goodness, we thank you for your generosity we thank you that we can receive from you and Lord, I pray that for any in the room this morning that feel far from you, Lord, that they would, they would sense your presence that has been made tangible in the bread and the juice as a reminder that you are tangible, that you are close, that you are around, but you are also in. And so we thank you for the relationship that you have with us. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to live our lives in a response to that generosity.